was young, a lot of my comedy was in disdain and shitting on things because I was young and I was terrified and insecure. So it's very safe to be like, oh, this is stupid. And it's way riskier when you get older to try to get laughs talking about something that you genuinely, unironically love. And that's a harder thing to pull off. But in my opinion, all of the truly great comedies come from people dealing with something that they truly love and seeing its flaws rather than something that they hate and they're just dumping all over it. Hi, welcome back to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. If you're a virgin to the show, Employee of the Month is a glimpse into the working lives of people I adore and admire professionally, personally. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to bring you this particular episode. Starting with Patton Oswalt, it is impossible to list all of his credits because actually every seven seconds, Patton Oswalt scores another voiceover gig as well as a television show. But if you don't know who Patton Oswalt is, maybe you've been living in a hut in Mogadishu, which I'm slightly envious of because it has been a shit show in the rest of the world. It may also be there as well. But if you're in your hut, you don't know about that, which is exciting, which is also why you didn't know about Patton Oswalt, which would be disappointing. But now you get to. Patton is first and foremost an incredible stand-up, and you can catch him live. You can also check out his special Annihilation on Netflix, as well as several other of his specials. You may recognize him from Ratatouille. That is an animated show, so he obviously looks exactly like the character he was playing, the rat. That was where he sort of got his big breakout into the film world. And then Young Adult was, I believe, one of the first films, actually second films I found, um, that he showed his acting chops as a serious dramatic actor. We spoke about the other one, so I'm not going to give it away. And you may remember his voice from Secret Life of Pets. If you don't, he's in Secret Life of Pets, too. There's also BoJack Horseman and, as I mentioned, way too many episodes of way too many shows. Veep, I could keep going. I won't because I want you to actually be able to listen to our episode. I do want to give a shout-out to All Be Gone in the Dark, which his late incredible wife, Michelle McNamara, wrote. Michelle McNamara was part of and principal in Catching the Golden State Killer, so I highly recommend checking out that book. I was also thrilled to find out that Patton was able to fall in love again, and he was married by Employee of the Month alumni Martha Plimpton. Highly recommend you check out our two interviews. Martha Plimpton had two interviews on Employee of the Month, which makes her a two-time Employee of the Month award winner. All right, this episode was recorded live at Largo in Los Angeles. Stick around because we have Tig Notaro on the show. Without further ado, here's Patton Oswalt. Hi, Katie. Hi, Patton. Thanks I'm, for having me on the podcast. I'm so thrilled because we were both performing at the Kennedy Center. I was in um, Broom Closet and you were uh, on the main stage. Yeah, that was, uh, was that two weeks ago? You sold out and they had to have two shows for you. Could you say that again? What did I sell out? You sold out, the, to me, one of the most prestigious venues because both of us grew up in D.C., so it was a big deal. The Kennedy Center, yeah. It was um, very good. Oh, my God, you know what I just realized? I, years ago, uh, I, I did a tour called the Comedians of Comedy, and it was me, so it's me, Zach Galifianakis, Maria Bamford, Brian Posehn, on the road, uh, doing shows, and one of the venues that we did was the Black Cat oh, wow. in D.C., another really cool... Very hip. For me, growing up, it was a very important... That and the 930 Club were the two, like... So I... And so for me, it was like a big deal to get to do the Black Cat. This is this is very embarrassing. So we do the show, and the place, as far as what I can see, it's packed to the walls. Oh, my God, we sold out the Black Cat. So I'm a little kind of puffed up. 
talking to the manager afterward, like, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty good crowd in there. Like, we did, did pretty well. He goes, yeah, you, you, guys, you guys sold some tickets. It was good. I go, yeah, but I mean, it was like people were, like, jammed against the wall. It was uh, you know, pretty much – I just want him to tell me that I've sold the place out. He goes, no, you sold, like, 700 tickets. That's really good. I'm like, oh, so the, the place holds, like, 700. And he goes, well, no, I mean, it holds 850. We normally do a lot of, like, punk shows and thrash shows, um, and those are, like, you know, little meth addicts, and your fans tend to be more like, – like, he's basically <laughs> – our, our fans are these chubby nerds, so they, they literally physically could only fit 700 of my fans into that. And I'm like, so by, by, by the rules of physics, we sold it out because there was no room, but number-wise, we were 150 under, so and damn that, it. That, like, the underminer, where it's like you're never enough. Yes, exactly. It was just right, oh, it was right there, I don't have it, so. I was so uh, intrigued. I saw this comic that you had done, I think, in... College? Is that true or no? Oh my God! Where did you find that? On the, on the, on the interwebs. Is it on the interwebs? Yeah. I didn't. By the way, I wasn't the art on this. I was just the writing. When I was at uh, uh, in college, my newspaper they wanted a, a monthly, uh, a weekly comic. So I wrote this, and there was this artist. She was really cool, and we it was basically just about like a. I had a lot of friends that were in bands, so I would basically filter their stories of woe uh, through, you know, six-panel comic art, and that was the, oh, my God. I, I don't even have these. I need, we need to talk after the show. Yeah, I, I need this for my archives. Oh, my Lord. Well, it's, it's just sort of incredible, though, that to be able to do this. was like a, a weekly newspaper or something yeah. at school? Yeah, a paper called The Flat Hat at uh, William & Mary yeah. in Williamsburg. And, uh, yeah, I was a... I would write, do reporting on that, and yeah, oh my God, that was my year's scripting cartoons. I have no art skills, so no. luckily we had the, uh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> what other surprises from my past do you have? Well, I wanted to ask, like, um, how did doing it? Yes, I was in a neo-Nazi group for two years. Okay, fine. It was, I was very confused. Black is very slimming. It's a very slimming color. I wanted to ask sort of a similar question to that. <laughs> Go right ahead. How did doing a student loan commercial? So I think it was like a fun, I couldn't tell. Oh, God. Yeah, you no, know, this, this wasn't even a commercial. This was an industrial film. There I am. Yeah. I highly encourage you to watch. No, I highly encourage you not to. Basically, um, I, this was my junior year of, uh, college. Uh, I had been doing comedy for a year, and there was a local industrial film being shot called um, "Student Loans and You," about how to deal with student loans. And they needed, and so the, the, the setting was comedians t doing jokes about. Like, and it was really bad because we about we, student loans. Well, no. What would start off? We would try to do like a thing about, hey, you ever be in the Seven Eleven? And it was so badly scripted, like there was no segue into. Talk so it would be like you're in the Seven Eleven and then the big gulp and you're trying to get all these things. But seriously, if you default on your like, you would just immediately go into like these weird. It was so as it was me and another comedian named J.C. Shakespeare yeah. who has since moved to Austin and has been in some Richard Linklater films oh, wow. and uh, and then a, a local actress playing a comedian like did the rhythms of comedy. Okay, and it was us just. We're in a comedy club, and it was this was the first thing I was ever paid to act in. I got three hundred dollars, and I was the 
I was the hero of my apartment that week because I had. That's <laughs> a big I, deal. $300? I had beer and pretzel. I had three hundred bucks. I'm like, oh my God, what am I gonna do with this? I didn't, you know. And so. I, the thing is, it feels very much of that era, and you. Oh, look at that! I mean, come on, t-shirt under the sweater vest. Um, <laughs> with rolled had, sleeves, by the way. Rolled it. Well, yeah, exactly. I gotta roll the sleeves up. Um, you can't see, but those are those super. They're jeans, but they're so faded that they're basically almost white. You know, that, that kind of thing. And then just the, I, I mean, I, I kind of have a little mullet, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very early 90s. This is very, this, no, this isn't even, this is like, I think, 1990. So grunge hadn't even shown up yet. This, this was like still like New Jack City stuff was going on. <laughs> so I had this fallacy in my head that it took years for people to suddenly, you know, for their careers to take off. But four years later, you were doing Seinfeld. Well, yeah, but that still wasn't. Here's the thing, though. It wasn't that I was. It wasn't that my career took off. I did yeah. Seinfeld and got an after card. Like I didn't get, it wasn't like I got Seinfeld and then moved into a mansion. I, I just, I got a role on TV. I literally say two lines and I got my after card. Although I do remember getting calls. I very specifically remember getting a call from a friend who had seen me on Seinfeld. And he was this guy that I grew up, he was a great guy, but he was like, you know, never cared about acting or the arts or anything creative. And he was like, Saw you on TV, man. You know, I'm thinking of uh, maybe it's time I make the jump. I move out there and uh, and I go, move out where? To L.A.? He goes, yeah, just like start acting. I mean, you did. I'm like, well, I didn't just move out here. And like, I've been doing this for six years trying to break through. He goes, yeah, well, I'll just come and I'll just live with you. And I'm like, I live in a studio apartment on Normandy. Like, my bed is in my kitchen. And he goes, you live in a house. I go, I know, I live in a studio apartment. He goes, I've seen you on TV, you have a house. And I had to like, and I had to talk him out. And then he, luckily he didn't move out, but then I heard from my friends, he was going around going, yeah, Pat moved to LA and just turned into a dick. You know, he got, <laughs> he got really, uh, he got really wealthy and he doesn't want, I'm like, yeah, come here and split my $200 a month rent in my hovel that I live in. I think it's called an under five, if you have under five lines. I was, I was an under five. Let's hear your two lines. Here it is. I'd like to rent breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, this is out. Well, I can put it on reserve for you if you'd like. Maybe we could call them and ask them to return it. <laughs> oh, sorry. We can't do that. <laughs> I'm not a very... Oh, God, no. memorable... <laughs> There were actors that, like, their first scenes on that show, like, were genuinely memorable. And I am a, I'm a space filler for the plot to get him to I look at the address. So. It's realistic that you would be working in a video store. Oh, very realistic, yeah. Type, yeah. Typecast. Well, I mean, I worked in, although I never actually worked in a video store. I'd worked in record stores, never did video. Okay, so it was Waxy Mac, is it? Oh, God, yeah. I worked at a place in Northern Virginia called Waxy Maxies. And in the area... This is in Northern Virginia in the 70s and 80s. There were three records. There were three record store chains. Top of the line, the most um, kind of um, artisanal, actually, was a place called Penguin Feathers. That's where like the cool kids worked and they knew the good. Penguin Feathers. Penguin Feathers. Cool yeah, penguin. Yeah, because because penguins can't fly, man. So like Penguin Feather, like, I'm I'm messing with your mind. And then um, beneath that was a place called Kemp Mill Records. Catmill Records breaks its own record. That was its thing. And then there was Waxy Maxies. No radio, no TV, nothing. It was just, you know, hey, we have, the, we have last year's Heart album. You want that? <laughs> um, it was really sad. 
And that, so I worked at Waxy Maxi's, and that was the first job I was ever fired from. Really? We, yeah. What did I, you, what did, what did, I, 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 I sound so blaming. I'm like, what did you do? Yeah, what, what did, did you, what yeah. did they think you did? No, no, they were, first, before I go, it, I, they were completely justified in firing me. I was being such a dick. Um, there was a guy that, I mean, I was being nice, but some guy came in on a bad day, um, and he was one of these, like, kind of, um, at the time, that power suit, power tie, kind of... Double-breasted? The, yeah, the, the kind of, like, Gordon Gecko-looking thing, you know, like... But, but like, that version, but in the suburbs of Virginia. Like, he had seen Wall Street and then tried to affect that look as best he could. Kind of like this guy? Kind of the, um... Oh, well... <laughs> no, that's... Come on, I got a little... Little pin on with a little skeleton in it. No, I'm, this is this is like low budget goth, basically, is what that is. Um, so he uh, and and there was some kind of battery giveaway where if you buy a bunch of batteries, there's coupons. And he was being really <coughs> shitty to me about it, but I, and I should have handled it with more grace. And finally, he was like, "Well, I'll just maybe I'll just call your manager since you don't seem to know where these things are." And then I'll go, "I'll tell him the douche in the yellow tie was looking for the battery <laughs> coupons." Like. And then he, like, didn't know what to do, and then he went out on the sidewalk and stood out on the sidewalk and waited for the manager to come back from lunch and then was, like, pointing in and yelling at me. And I'm literally looking at this going, oh, I'm going to get fired. Like, he's going to come in and fire me. And then the guy came in and fired me, and I did this thing where I didn't even get, like, I didn't even get, like, good walkout music either because when I was, when, when he said, we got to let you go, you can't talk to customers that way. And I was like, well, this is bullshit. He was the one that instigated. He goes, that's not, that's not the point. You need to be, you need to rise above that. That's your job. And then, so as I'm doing this, I just remember, um, this is right when Peter Gabriel's So album had come out. Oh, yeah. And the song In Your Eyes was yes. playing while I was trying to go like, well, fuck all of you. In your eyes. Like, it was so, couldn't even have like a Dead Kennedy song or anything. Like, just, it was just, oh, such a bummer. <laughs> How does it feel? I think thirty your thirty year anniversary. Thirty year anniversary, yeah. Of doing stand up. Uh, yeah, well, it was. Yeah, I, uh, being gluten free. No, of doing be, stand up. Being gluten free. <laughs> um, yes, uh, thirty years stand up. One year sober. It was really great. Um, I started in July, July eighteenth, nineteen eighty eight. So last month, I it was thirty years of of thirty years of this miserable slog. Um, which was nice. It was like, oh, that was... And, and it's weird how I realized I needed to find a profession where if someone was being a dick, I could be a dick back and be celebrated yeah. for it. And so I found stand-up, where if there's a douche in a yellow tie yelling at me, I can go, well, go fuck yourself. And that no one's going to come in and go, hey, like, look, that would be hilarious if I had dealt with a heckler and then a guy came out on stage like, I'm very sorry, folks. You can't talk to me. Like, you have to deal with these people. They have, they're having a hard day too, so we got to let you go. And then you play them off, and then your and eyes. then in your eyes starts playing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's my walkout music. God damn it! So I saw this film at the Angelica, and I really liked it. And I, I knew the the writer. He'd also done the wrestler, and he'd written for the the Onion. And I was curious yes. if this was like your first dramatic role, which is the question I asked Tignataro yeah. as well. Um, this this movie. Oh, not about this movie. Yeah. This this movie. Are we gonna are we gonna show a clip first, or should I talk about it first? Well, it's up to you. Um, one of the things that this is a movie called Big Fan, and one of the things that thank you. Um, one of the things that got me this was I did an episode of Dollhouse, and I did a very very dramatic, very dark scene oh, wow. that I'd never done anything like that before, and and that was one of the things that because apparently they had been 
taking the script around to a lot of people. And it was, I mean, the guy that was making it, uh, he basically took the money that he got for writing The Wrestler and used it to make this film. So there was no money. There was no, I mean, there was no dressing rooms. There was no catering. Catering was Subway. We're going to go to Subway. What does anyone want? We shot it on Staten Island for no money. But the script was so good. And it was also one of those things where I'm such a movie buff and my whole thing was I would always talk about in the 70s like if Coppola wanted to make the rain people he would just start shooting it man they didn't wait for they did it with no money so now someone was actually doing the kind of movie that I always said people should do so I'm like well I have now I gotta go do it because this is so so that was another reason so luckily he saw the dollhouse episode and then Got Although the guy that wrote and directed the movie was the editor of The Onion for years. Yeah, that's what I said before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really in my own head right now. I don't really. Um, uh, holy shit! That's right. You did say he was the editor of The Onion. <laughs> he can still be the editor, but he is okay. actually not the editor. Anymore. Not anymore. No. <laughs> he he wrote. He basically wrote everything in Our Dumb Century. He yeah. wrote that book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you say that before? No. Okay. Good. Um. The other thing that I liked about this, and we can talk about it after, but I just wanted to, for the audience members who haven't seen it, that mm-hmm. you have tons of fans, but you also fan out on people. And so I sort of enjoyed seeing this because I've, I've heard you fan out on people. Oh, yeah. And it, so it felt I never want to get to a point where I don't fan out on people because that's kind of like you've given up on. If you're not excited by stuff anymore, that's a that's a really sad place to be in your life. Like you should always have people that you not even like that they're huge stars, but just some stranger that you meet that says something amazing. Like wow, thanks for like I didn't see that coming. So like you always want to have that. So I, I guess that was a thing I was able to really feed into this. So let's watch. Hey, sports dog, how you doing? Um, I'm just calling to say. I can't wait for this Sunday when we finally shut these Philly clowns up once and for all. That's quiet by you? Yakking away like some... I'm quiet! I'm quiet! I'm quiet! I'm quiet! <laughs> that, the, the woman that plays my mom uh, was, um, uh, um, her name is um, uh, Norma Jean Kurtz. Who was one of the tellers in Dog Day Afternoon, and um, she was in Panic in Needle Park, and so just get into again another film fan fanning out like you know she was there for a lot of that great early seventy and had these amazing stories about doing those films and and then you know doing scenes with her because she's such a volcanic force as an actress made a lot of my scenes with her very very easy to do like it was very and then you saw Kevin Corrigan plays my best and only friend Kevin Corrigan and I. The, the the director was very open to us riffing and and you know um, ad libbing. You can just you can talk about sports if you want to. And not Kevin and I know nothing about sports. We don't know how to. <laughs> so there's a scene at the beginning where we're driving to a game. And he goes, "Just we'll film you guys. You talk about sports." So I literally I, I had like one thing that I knew to so like, man, I hope they uh, manage to something like I guess they'll be moving those chains or something like that. <laughs> and then and then I just stopped. That's all I've got. And then there is. 10 seconds of the most ass-grinding silence, and then Kevin Corkin goes, I love football! <laughs> Which is still one of the funniest things I've heard anybody say. I laughed. I, I, I must have laughed for like half an hour, like I blew so many things. I love football! Contempt is like, it ends up ruining 
everything when you're stuck there. And we were talking yeah. about that before, that like when you, when you were starting out, that it was easier to Because it's to get safer. Stuck there. It's such a safe position to be in because you're not risking anything. You know, I, 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 again, I try to be, I try to find comedy, I guess, in enthusiasm rather than, and it wasn't always this way. When I was young, a lot of my comedy was in disdain and, yeah. and shitting on things because I was young and I was terrified and insecure. So it's very safe to be like, oh, this is stupid and this is lame. And it's way riskier when you get older to try to get laughs talking about something that you genuinely, unironically love. Yes. And that's a harder thing to pull off. But in my opinion, all of the truly great comedies come from people um, dealing with something that they truly love and seeing its flaws rather than something that they hate and they're just dumping all over it. it, it it's, the, it's the Mel Brooks principle where you know, his early films are so genius because he was obsessed with Broadway, worked for these sleazy producers, loved them, genuinely loved these guys made the producers obsessed with Russian literature, loved it, but also saw a lot of the flaws and craziness in it, loved Westerns, but was trying to reconcile all the racism in them, so made Blazing Saddles, and then truly loved Young Frankenstein to the point where I think he'd even bought some of the equipment from the movie and had it in his garage, literally, like, not knowing what he's going to do with it, and then made Young, like, that's where those movies are so because he's making fun of something that he when you truly love something you can't help but go this thing is so great but why is this one thing you know and that's where the best comedy comes from but if you I mean one of my favorite bits um, recently and and even though it's about someone that passed away who I truly loved it was about uh, this guy um, there's a uh, a comedian named Shane Torres who does does an amazing bit about Anthony Bourdain versus Guy Fieri where you're thinking well he's going to say Bourdain is awesome and Fieri sucks, but he takes it from the... And he's not trying to be clever or ironic. He's like, no, this is why Guy Fieri is actually better than Anthony Bourdain, and it's brilliant. And because and, and, you do not expect it to go the way that it goes. And it's one of my favorite new bits. I think it's the most important thing to be able to live with that nuance and sit yes. there. And I think one of your greatest gifts, at least to me, is showing how to hold both of these truths simultaneously. It's hard, yeah. It's, I mean, especially now, it, we, we've never lived more in a time where you have to, in order just to function day to day, you have to kind of reboot what is real every single day, despite the fact that there are basically megaphones blaring the opposite of what is reality and- in your ear constantly. It, it's like an evil version of the short story Harrison Bergeron, yeah. you know, where they're just blasting what isn't happening and you have to go, no, the sky's actually blue. And like blood is, it, it's like that bad right now. So I, um, on that note, I, I wanted to talk about something that was made, was a beautiful thing out of something very sad. And that is I'll be gone in the dark yes. and that it's becoming an HBO series. I'm just going to put the yeah. cover. Cause I, I do want everyone to go out and read this, um, phenomenal book. And Thank I, you. I wanted to ask, um, because your your wife was so devoted to working on this case, yeah. did you learn any work habits from her? Like, did you take away anything on that front? I mean, we had, you know, when we met, we had kind of really had spent, you know, many, many years figuring out what our best work methods were for ourselves. Yeah. So we were very, very sensitive to not kind of try to bleed over into each other. Like, we would go, okay, whatever you need to just... Be open with what you need insofar as, you know, getting 
into gear to write and then coming down, kind of coming off the spirit when you're writing? Because when you write, you kind of go out of reality for a little bit. Yeah. You need to establish that concentration. So what she needed you know, were these set of things. And I would go out of my way to make sure she got those. And then I needed these set of things. But we weren't trying to go, well, let's try to sync up exactly and, and let's try to get the same method because no writer – has the same method and in that by you know um that way leads to madness i think if you go that way like well no you need to be sitting no i like to be when i write i have a lap desk and i sit and it's and the lap desk here and the laptop is here and my feet are up and i'm kind of like almost gliding along and i have <laughs> noise canceling headphones on and just kind of random music going no lyrics can't have lyrics and then i just sort of go and then come out of it and then there it all is whereas she Liked to, she did not like having headphones on. She liked to write in longhand at a desk and then sit in bed with a laptop. And she wow. would go back and forth. So, so neither one of us was like, excuse me, you need to get out of that bed and sit with a lap desk. No, it was like we very much respected, like, your thing is your thing. And, you're, you know, that, and that's just how it worked. I recommend Glenn Gould. Um. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, I love the Goldberg variations, yeah. but they're so goddamn relaxing yeah. that they're terrible weird. to write to. I like um, Eric Satie's uh, Gymnopades and, uh, and and then the the what's it, what's the March of the Shrimps? And it's the one that Pascal Roger is playing. He's doing all of um, Satie's things. That's great music to write to. Okay, I'm yeah. going to check that out. Yes, I wanted I think to- I mispronounced Gymnopades. It's huh? It sounds. Gymnopédie. Gymnopédie. Merci. Yeah. My God, could I be more... Yeah, I like that Satis Gymnopéd. Oh, holy shit, man. I put that in my fucking ear earlobes, and it's like, I'm fucking... I'm Leo goddamn Tolstoy. It's amazing. But I... <laughs> you're, you're so prolific, and I was curious, like, how... Do you set time aside to write? Like you've done. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm very, very, um, I'm very, very open about. I need this chunk of time, and 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 again, when I say I need like four hours, I'm also very honest about. I need four hours to do twenty minutes of writing. Yeah, which is you do need that. You need time to like because a lot of it is just writing a bunch of sentences. Oh no, delete. This sucks. You know, or, or doing almost like automatic writing for a while until, cause a lot of times you don't know what you want to write until you start writing it. Like you, the idea yeah, do you won't outline come. First or no? no. And I, and I wish I had that discipline. I, I don't outline, but I do. Um, uh, Jane Espenson has this term called writing sprints that I oh, love. Yeah, yeah. And I, on Twitter, and on Twitter. And I yeah. do, I, but I do like a writing sprint where I just cast the net so huge. It's almost like fragmented words and sentences. Um, if, especially if I'm writing an introduction or a review of something, that can That's be... That's what you're re- doing now. I'm in the middle. I got to finish three different introductions and one review. So, um, and... and Introductions are for books of people you like? or Yes, I, I, I just finished an introduction to a friend's memoir. I'm doing another introduction for a reissue of a book that is like a huge deal for me so it's a big deal for me to get to write this introduction but that's very like the book is such a perfect piece of work that it it makes it impossible to write because every in my mind every one of my sentences has to be a perfect sentence if it's going to be attached to this thing I don't want to be on this thing like a barnacle I want to be I want to be on this thing like a figurehead you know like so 
so it, it just so that's this has been a very hard week. I mean, last week I got the intro to my friend's book done, but the review and these other two intros, I keep stopping and starting, and then I'll just go on YouTube and watch scenes of movies I like, or just just try to you know just a million distractions. Is it perfectionism? Uh, sometimes it's a lot of things. It it's it's perfect. It's again, I fall into there's four traps. What did I think Alan Moore said this. Um, I thought there were four agreements. Well, there's four agreements. There's also, um, hang on. Oh, three, three traps. Posterity, <laughs> reputation, and cool. Those, those are three traps. And I always fall into those traps. Yeah. I always fall into, you know, posterity. Oh, down the line, is someone going to hold this up as an example of shitty writing right. in 50 years? You know, reputation right now because of your ego. And then cool. I feel like you still get it out. You don't sell it out. I do that. get it out, but it's not, it doesn't come out in this wonderful flow. Like, I'm not but this guy that, it, it, it is, it is being, I'm not, I don't have that, the, um, I'm not, I'm not Stephen King, I'm Thomas Harris, where, you know, Stephen King, it just flows and it reads beautifully. And Thomas Harris reads beautifully too, but literally Thomas Harris, I, I've heard, is he's like, literally like rolls on the floor gnashing it. That's why he puts out a book every 20 years. The books are great, but... You know, you got to silence at the lambs, and then a decade later, hey, Hannibal's out, and he because he he agonized over every sentence. So, but I think it's acknowledging who you are. I had uh, Masha Gessen, who's an incredible scholar on the Jesus. She's such a good writer. So she she writes two things for the New Yorker every week, and teaches at Amherst, even though she lives in Harlem Fuck. and raises all these kids. And I asked her when she writes, and she's done fourteen books, and she said from nine p.m. to four a.m. And so then there was this New York Times reporter in the what audience. The hell? <laughs> there was a New York Times reporter who was like, I feel inadequate. And I was like, yeah, we all do. Yeah. I remember reading That's a healthy. profile of Catherine Dunn, who wrote Geek Love, and she wrote a book before that called Attic that she wrote in between, she was working as a waitress. So in between tables, she would go into like the um, the walk-in freezer and write a few sentences, then go back out and bring like how I cannot wrap my mind around not like having that your concentration constantly smash up like that and still writing that good of a book. That's insane. How did she do that? She's on a different level. But yeah, she I really you was. Are, you are on a different level too. I, I w- <laughs> but thank you. How how are you fe- feeling these days? You got married to an incredible woman. Yes. You just uh, celebrated a 30-year anniversary. You've obviously been through hell and back. <laughs> um, that was one thing. It was weird. I, getting remarried, I, I remarried this amazing, amazing woman, amazing person. Like, just this amazing mind. Like, it, it's, I've never been, you know, they, they talk about, people talk about, like, what what is a soulmate and everything. But, like, I think it it's what... This the woman that I'm married to now. It's that you cannot wait to grow old with them. There isn't that dread of like, oh my god, what if we fall out of it? It's really fifty years. I cannot wait for us to be cranky, lovable old people. Just I, I honestly can't. And but but that like, but I was actually kind of afraid. I still kind of am in that I was in so the depths of despair, and now. So in the heights of joy, is that dangerous? Is that like, is that like but taking a, a glass out of the out of the washing machine where it's hot and pouring cold, and then just smashes like it's too? You know what I mean? Like that worries I do. me. 
No, because you're able to feel. I mean, I think the worst thing is when you cannot feel anything or are just afraid to. I mean, you, you, the, those that despair is so real, and that is something that you know. Yeah, but one you has know, to sit sit with, and as you said, so uh, definitely slog through. Yeah, but the thing that worries me sometimes is you know, uh, uh, writers and creative people have the highest rates of of uh, mental illness because part of our job requires us to inhabit other lives and personalities if you really, really want to bring those to life. And sometimes I think over time that can make your 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 base personality start to flicker and, and maybe not have the the solid foundation. That's why a lot of these, you know, brilliant writers later on or even especially brilliant actors, you know, a lot of them go crazy because they really give too many aspects of themselves, I think, to these works and then later on how much of them is left. It, it's it's very strange. I hope you hold on to most of you. So do I. <laughs> My God. But at the same time, like every time I sit in front of the computer or every time I open the notebook to work, write jokes, I want to go for broke every time. I don't want to just, you know, turn in C minus. I want to, you know, take a run at it. I do feel so grateful for the fact that you've presented how you've lived with uncertainty so well. Mm-hmm. And I do want to recommend that people see <coughs> Annihilation and I do want to let you get home. Um, we, got, we got you a couple gifts. Ooh. Um, I talked to Meredith and I think you are a prolific writer and I think you are um, incredible. And so I wanted to give you Masha Gessen's book, The Future. Damn, the there you go. She probably fucking wrote this during a spin class. Look at this. <laughs> she was like on the bike, just like, um, yeah, just... Uh, do a quick overview of the fall of Vienna during the Anschluss. And the, oh, are we doing the cool down song? Okay, good. Let's take that to the publisher. She, she, she does bike everywhere. She yeah. Does. Oh, she does? She like biked from Harlem to our show is like almost in Brooklyn. And she was like, sorry, I was a minute late. And I was like, I can't believe you're like alive. No, <laughs> I highly recommend this book because of the despair that's going on to not fall into contempt, but to fall into a place of understanding to the extent that one can. I mean, it's. Yeah, really she wrote difficult. a thing for The Atlantic about. Uh, um, uh, I think it was like Bill Bill O'Reilly's how he writes like history or something like that, or but using that as the elite point, and it was a very um, optimistic thing to read. And she got to optimism optimism by diving into despair, and it was an, it was an amazing feat to to get to see that on the page. And I want you to continue to have a fertile career, and this is the goddess oh, of fertility. That's and I, right. I love her breasts. Venus of Willendorf is it? Oh, those what amazing the breasts. Venus, the Venus of Willendorf. Very, nice. Very Russ Meyer. I like that. <laughs> it is. It is yeah. fresh from the Park Slope Co-op. I have yeah, to tell exactly. you. Yeah, exactly. You know what? No, you know what they? Know what this? Know what this? Uh, what this statue is called? No judgments. That's what that was called when it came out. Curves are beautiful. Curves. Curves. She's are gorgeous. Beautiful. And on, on yeah. that note, I got all of these treats from Russ and Daughters. Ah. You, can, you can wait to have them after the Emmys if you want. Yeah. But there's chocolate babka and bagels and beyond. Oh my God. <laughs> Hello, carbs. All right. Um, I adore you. I hope you will come oh, back to play the yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. In your eyes. Isn't he a mensch? I just adore him. I, I, I know. Get in line. And speaking of uh, comedians to adore, Tig Notaro. I'm so thrilled to have her on this episode. We recorded it live at Largo, where she performs monthly. All right, I'll leave it there. Here's my interview with the one and only Tig Notaro. In a World was one of my favorite films, and I was just curious, is that was that your first sort of like dramatic role or medieval? Dramatic. Well, I guess is it a drama? I don't I don't know. I just love it. It's the film. a comedy. 
Okay. <laughs> I was crying the whole time, so I just didn't know. Um, in a world was definitely a comedy. Are you sure you saw it? <laughs> I was going to play a little uh, clip from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it my first dramatic role? Or like more meaty role? Like, like having... It was actually... I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I was cast as Joan Jett's mother in The Runaways. Okay. And then I was cut out of that. <laughs> so... Um, you, you that was cut out of running away. Yeah, um, so that was pretty meaty, but that <laughs> that ended quickly. And then um, I think that was my first. It might have just been my first movie. I can't remember. Um, can we play a little bit from Inner World for those who, who haven't seen it? Sure. Let's play the whole movie. Oh, hey, um, I heard through the grapevine they want you to VO the promo for that crazy trilogy. And don't bust me for dropping the broccoli. I'll see. I'll see you guys. Yeah. Congrats. Thank you for the dropping the broccoli. You should cut your hair. Stop trying to woo me by being mean. Doesn't work. You want to get a drink later? Okay. <laughs> Pretty dramatic. <laughs> it was the first time I'd seen you on yeah. camera doing like a. Deeper role, I would yeah, say. yeah. That's my wife. It really is. That's my wife. I met my wife on that movie. Thank you. I don't know if that was meant like good for you. And, and she became your writing partner as well. Yep, and the mother of my children. job of like taking your personal stories and putting them through so many different vehicles like stand-up storytelling um but I was just curious when you did the one Mississippi because it's fiction what did you get out of that that you felt like you didn't get when you were doing you know or writing a book stand-up the documentaries god I do it all huh <laughs> um, uh I think that what was it was uh it Doing the TV show was fun for me because um, everything else that I was doing was basically um, me recounting specific and real details from my life. And this, this TV show was that, but also I thought it was a way that I could kind of change storylines and create new endings and, um, and just... I felt very confined by my story that had, you know, taken all these different avenues of, you know, you, you named them off. Comedy, <laughs> books. Well, because I think it's phenomenal. I, I have one other clip, and this is from One Mississippi. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was just having read your memoir, having seen your stand-up, this felt like a different world even though it is clearly based on, on you. Um, it's, yeah, it's loosely based, um, but it, uh, yeah. I think this next scene is probably accurate to what went down. <laughs> you can't just leave your mother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I didn't know. Oh my gosh, that'd be just straight up 
up nuts. Yeah. <laughs> I'm realizing that now. Bye, Caroline. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Best wishes. Thank you. Be good. Love you. It's been a pleasure. Do you have any questions? Just want to know how accurate that was to real life. Actually, when my mother died in real life, I really didn't know what to do. And I, I didn't know how to walk out of the hospital room and leave her dead body. I truly was just... It's my mother. And so then my brain split off into all these different ideas of, like, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to ask the hospital if I can, this can be just my room where I come visit my mother's <laughs> corpse? Um, do I take her with me? There, nothing, you know, any... And, and obviously, I wasn't trying to be funny in the moment, but I was truly just like, I can't leave my mother. And it just didn't feel natural. And after I went down every avenue in my head of what to do, I realized I had to, you know, just face reality that I had to say goodbye to my mother. And, um, and yeah, that scene is one of my favorite scenes. I... The other thing with death having... And it's, uh, it's a moment where it's like a break in reality where it's, you know, feeding off of my... I'm sure you guys are smart enough to add that up. <laughs> but anyway, in case there's a dumbass in the room. <laughs> I was going to say, like, having lost the closest person to me and being in the hospital at that moment where, like, I get handed a, a bag with her glasses and pants... Yeah. And there's this banality to it. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden it has, like, sort of these logistics that you would have maybe at an airport or, like, getting an ID, you know, a driver's license. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like what you did there was so beautiful in being like, this is what's actually going on for, the, for you inside. But the way that it's treated is, I, I use the word banality because I think it, it is. They sort of just go through what they need to do to discharge you. Yeah, for sure. It's not, it's not a fun moment. Let's sit with it for a little bit more. <laughs> I'm happy to sit with anything we have to sit with. Well, that is something that you've done so beautifully, and it's been so helpful, is to see how you sat with grief aloud and been able to also work and also fall in love and create this new family. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really wonderful as someone who's seeing you um it's been i know that probably test this word inspiring but it is um thank you are you excited to leave that chapter behind or do you feel like you know what i i think i'm always going to live out loud um you know i am in a different chapter in my life right now i I mean, obviously, there's day-to-day problems and there's bigger problems uh, in the world, but my life is really great, and I can't, I can't pretend like it's otherwise. 
I was curious, did you have any experiences where you had to, you know, fire a friend or have you ever been fired by a friend? Wow. Um, <laughs> way to take it down. Um, yeah, it was one of my favorite uh, parts of the job. Uh, I was like, oh, now I get to uh, hire and fire. And I really abused my power. Um, no, I... Um, I did. I had to um, let someone go that uh, I think is really amazing. And um, but luckily, it felt like, uh, or luckily, there was a mutual feeling of this wasn't the right pairing together, and we're still good friends. But it was, it was uh, an experience that I was capable of handling and you know in those moments i always remind myself that we're all gonna make it through this moment we'll we'll be breathing you know five minutes after the conversation and when you are have you been on the flip side of that i've never been let go it's <laughs> incredible it's not true i've um <laughs> i was a host um at a restaurant and um they had, you know, the employee of the month, of the month yeah. and they had the worst. <laughs> and my stupid face was in there, in the worst. I will, I will kick this microphone over. Um, um, and I wanted to hear about the movie you're working on, like what inspired you? To, I wanted to be first. I grew up in D.C. and my family works in politics. So I, I did want to be first lady. I didn't think I was capable enough to be a president. Obviously, that is not an issue um, for some, some. But I was curious, like what inspired you to do a movie about being a first lady? Um, well, when I first met my wife, um, she's very uh, she follows politics very closely and I said to her, I was like, you should run for mayor of uh, Los Angeles. And then after I said that, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the first lady. And, uh, <laughs> and we had a, a good laugh about that. But I was like, seriously, I was like, I would do that. And, uh, and then it escalated to, you should run for president. And then I would be first lady of the country. <laughs> and, um, and then we started doing bits about it around the house and acting like she was president, I was first lady. And, <laughs> and, um, and we just were constantly joking about it. And then just one day I was like, this might actually be a funny movie. And then, um, so we reached out to Jennifer Aniston. On Gchat, or how did you connect? Um, <laughs> she had heard a podcast I was doing. Uh, that's not true, everyone believed it. Uh, no, uh, I, I uh, yeah, reached out to her, and, um, and we didn't even have a, a story put together. It was just, um, hey, what if you were the president and I was the first lady? And she was like, where do I sign? <laughs> and we were like, wait, really? And she was like, yeah, I love it. And so we were like, oh, no, we have to go figure out a movie. So, <laughs> Can I tell you the, this pattern on this chair? Um, did you fly these in from New York? Yeah, we flew them in yeah, um, on our big budget. That's good. Um, <laughs> But it reminds me, my son, Max, uh, 
and I have twin boys. Max they're, and Finn. Max and Finn, they're two. And I know everyone thinks their kids are advanced. Let me be one of those people. But um, we were strolling the babies as we do every morning. And out of nowhere, Finn or Max said, hexagon. <laughs> He's two. At a stop sign. I was like, what? Hexagon. It's like, yes. <laughs> and then Stephanie and I are like, how does he, who told him about this? <laughs> anyway, I, I was able to wedge that in. I, I think that's a, a, good, a good note to, I wanted to thank you for coming out on a Sunday night since you do have toddlers. And I usually give books to my guests. Um, I have more time. We don't have And these are for me? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, didn't, I didn't want to give a, a parent of toddler books because I don't imagine you have any time to read, but I did want to give your kids No, we books. read to our children. <laughs> no, they're for the kids. I just meant, you know, uh, you know, like Ulysses or something like that. And let me ask you something. Does he play the banjo to let you know to wrap it up? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Tim Nazaro. Tig, Patton, thank you so much. Thank you to Largo. What a, what a treat to be there. And I really want to thank my band, my intern, Chris Shockwave Sullivan, my intern's intern, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, as well as Jordan Katz, Phil Connorwald. I want to thank Gretchen Liebram for coming out and singing. Leanne Mokia, who has been my uh, producer and uh, partner in crime. That's the phrase they use on dating sites these days, guys. I know. It's apps. It's apps. I know. I know what the kids are up to because I'm one of those kids. And special thanks to our incredible sponsor, Russ and Daughters. Thank you, Beyond. Thank you. Check them out. Thank you to Slate. I'm Katie Lazarus. This is Employee of the Month Show. I want to thank, thank, thank all of you for listening. If you like the show, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also check us out next year, 2019, live at Sundance or weekly as a podcast. I'm hoping we all make it. I mean, we've got to, right? Well, I don't know. I just don't know with what's going on in the world these days. Why don't we stay in touch? Check out next week's episode in January because it's a really fun episode as well. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thanks for tuning in to Employee of the Month. Have a happy and healthy New Year's. stand in a moment went up oh, up oh, yes there it is okay all right i took some notes there's a lot of stuff going on tonight give it up for all our guests ladies and gentlemen in the band all right let's see how this goes we're on the show y'all everybody back up it's time for the employee of the month wrap up they're gonna come out and they'll hold their plaques up it's time for the employee of the month wrap up guess one is here so cheer like there's no tomorrow because there can be no sorrow with ms tig nagaro nataro are you back there yes I'm not sure she might not be, but stress, drama, comedy, you do it all, it's true. You met your wife on set, good for you. Guess three, if you're laughing, it has to be his fault. You can't imagine what happens with Mr. Patton Oswalt. The audience love you, and they're not stout. So Patton, you actually sold the Largo out. There he is.